On episode 208 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll hear my wide-ranging conversation with elite tennis coach Claudio Pistolesi. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, it's Mirban, and I hope you're doing well and staying safe and playing some tennis as well. I actually got to play tennis with Greg Lasour from Online Tennis Instruction, as well as Val, who was Uh, helping Greg with a camp that they're having nearby where I live in Maryland. So it was really cool to have Greg visiting up here and just finally connecting in person after, you know, him being on my podcast and summits over the years. So it was great. Greg's a very good player as well as Val. And so we played for an hour and a half and then uh, grabbed some dinner and uh, some bubble tea. So that was fun. Uh, (laughs) Greg's first time having bubble tea. That was kind of funny, um, but he enjoyed it. But anyways, I'm sure that you all want to dive into this interview that I have for you. And it is a pretty long one, almost two hours. A great conversation with Claudio Pistolesi. Claudio is the director of the Junior Tennis Champion Center at Bowles in Jacksonville, Florida. And he has been there since 2018. Claudio was also ranked as high as number 71 on the ATP Tour, which is pretty amazing. And he's trained and coached many top ATP and WTA Tour pros, including Monica Seles, Robin Soderling, Simone Bolelli, Daniela Hantakova, Takao Suzuki, and Ai Sugiyama. And he's also a volunteer coach at the University of North Florida as well. And uh, we did record this episode, I think maybe a couple weeks ago now. So, uh, belated congrats to you, Claudio, on the uh, the Azzurri, the Italian uh, soccer team winning the Euros. But yeah, this will be a great conversation for you to listen to. We talk about the secrets to to the Italian players' great success. Uh, as you know, there's so many top ranked Italian players as well as Claudio's um, rise up to the pros and, um, you know, some of his secrets for uh, how he did so well and also some lessons that he learned that he wished that he could have implemented uh, while he was playing. And, uh, yeah, some really cool insights into, into pro tennis players, especially the Italian players. So I think you'll really enjoy it. A lot of great golden nuggets in here. So just sit back, relax, and take notes when needed. I'm sure you'll you'll find some really good stuff that you can implement into your game. So, all right, without further ado, here is my interview with Claudio Pistolesi. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. And it's really an honor and a pleasure to be interviewing Claudio Pistolesi today. It's really great to have somebody who has played at such a high level on the ATP tour, as well as coaching at an unbelievably high level too, uh, coaching many uh, professional tennis players, as I had mentioned in the intro. 
So, uh, Claudio, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's really, uh, really great to have you on. Hello to all of you, and it's a great pleasure for me, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, for sure. It was actually very, uh, very nice of you, you know, to do this. I, I actually had emailed you, and then uh, uh, very quickly after you responded uh, that, that we could just do it right away pretty much the same day, so that was awesome. So, And, and first of all, I have to give you... Uh, some props on on the Azuri, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You know, the Italian football team, as as of the day of this recording, at least, you know, they have progressed to the finals of the Euros. So I bet you're really excited about that. Yeah, it's a great time for Italian sports. We have the Azuri for football, we call soccer in America, and uh, tennis at Wimbledon. Uh, you know, we talk about that. It's doing great with Berrettini. And also basketball with, with Serbia, which never doesn't happen very often. Uh, Italian basketball uh, qualified for Tokyo Olympics. So a lot's going on in positive way in Italian sports, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, Claudio. So it's uh, great to hear, uh, especially for you and, and you know, uh, all of Italy. So, you know, like, as I mentioned, you've just um, undergone such a great career. And I, I always love to hear about how... Uh, great players and coaches started in the great sport of tennis. So um, how did you get into tennis? Well, I was born in 1967. So in the 70s, I was a kid. Uh, and in the 70s, the Italy was a superpower in, in the men's tennis with Adriano Panatta as a leader, still best player Italian ever. I don't know if Berrettini maybe soon can... <laughs> can uh, pass after many years, uh, but Adriano Barata is a legend, is the one who brings uh, uh, popularity to Italy, in Italy for tennis. So everybody was playing tennis and my parents uh, moved uh, when I was one year old and near a place with 20 tennis courts and it was very natural. Uh, you know, I was till 12, I made one, more than one sport. I was also playing football and swimming. So finally, soon I decided that tennis was my sport and that's how I, I was able to to take this pathway on tennis and uh, Italy won uh, the Davis Cup in 1976, uh, five times finalist and Adriano won the, the slam. The last uh, man's winning a grand slam was Adriano Panatta, 76 in uh, Roland Garros. Beautiful, Claudio. And, and so in terms of your junior career, because I'm, I'm curious to hear how you progressed to such great heights, uh, an elite level, obviously. So at what point in your junior career did you start training seriously? And then what was that in training environment like? Well, I remember exactly when I won the Italian championships under 14. I won uh, with good players, but weren't really comfortable. And I, I really remember after I got the trophy, I, I sat in, in the garden behind where we did the ceremony. And I remember exactly when I decided to to feel in my skin that I could go all the way to play the, as a professional, to play in all the majors. And I was really good in junior, soon internationally, and very good. I think I was junior number one in 1985. So uh, I was uh, feeding this... Uh, self-confidence with a lot of work. I had very good coaches that time that understand me and very good physical trainer, which was pretty rare at that time in, in the 80s, uh, which is a key, one of the key why, you know, in Italy we're very advanced now, uh, specialists specific for tennis conditioning training. In other countries, not like that. So I was lucky, lucky to have good people next to me and, and I, I went for really top level college career in the 80s. Very nice, uh, Claudio. So at that point, when you were 14 and you won that trophy, uh, and then you decided to, you know, to really go for it, uh, like, did anything in particular change 
with your training regimen? Like, I know you said that you, you trained a lot on your fitness, but like how much did your training change overall? And then if so, how did it exactly? Well, it, it changed in amount of time, but I have to thank my father because uh, we talk about uh, to go parallel uh, uh, education and sport, you know. So my father was not uh, give up a bit on my uh, education as a student. He, he let me keep playing tennis at the condition that I could complete the Liceo Classico. Liceo Classico is the toughest in Italy as high school, but you study Latin, you start uh, Greek. I was not understanding that time, but I was I had no choice. So the, the the brackets were in wood, you know, until 16 years old, I played with wood rackets so they could burn. And my father said, if you don't complete, I burn your racket. So I have no options then, then keep going and study really hard. But that was, I didn't realize, but it was the best incredible mental training to, to be understanding things, to be committed uh, with, uh, with my brain uh, in the morning and, and with, my, with my sport activity in the afternoon. So it was uh, incredible tough, but I never give up. I really want to do both well. The first one more, but, but soon I understand that my studying was helping my tennis. So I was very tough mentally because I was training that even without realizing and then, so I, I began a big fan of put together until completed high school age, even uh, a cost of some hours of training. It's very worth it, I think, for the future to complete your, uh, you know, to be more mature in, in every aspect. Well, that's a great uh, point, Claudio. You know, it, it's when you gain skills in tennis and gain skills in uh, non-tennis things and it, you know, they tend to cross over. So that's really cool to, to know that, you know, your, your intense studying actually did help your tennis in a, you know, I assume the, the decision-making and, and also the mental toughness, as you mentioned. So um, in terms of when you decided to go uh, to turn professional, uh, when was that? And then how did you come about to that decision? Well, very soon, the first goal was to get ATP points. And I remember in, in Brescia and Challenger, I qualified. So this was allowing me to get two ATP points. And that was inc- I was incredibly proud. I, I asked my mother to sue on my shirt, the two written, one ATP point, one ATP point. So I was going around with this shirt. So incredibly proud because I was belonging. You know, I exist as a professional player. I was not professional yet because I consider a professional somebody that is playing major tournaments in the main draw. But I was uh, belonging to the ranking of professional. And I was 17. So that's where I really felt another great step uh, to be able to, to belong to this uh, to this consider yourself a professional tennis player, ATP. Uh, very soon I start to know this association that I, was, I remember since 1986. And uh, I think that uh, had, had a great impact on my uh, feeling as an institution, my institution, my point of reference to consider myself a professional tennis player. Very nice, Claudio. And at that time, were you getting support from from the Italian Federation uh, and was it any different than how it works now? It was very different to work now but yes I did add uh, the support until I was uh, maybe 20 uh, from the Federation Adriano Panatta uh, stopped ten- quit tennis in 83 and 84 I got my ATP points and he became the director of the Federation at the time and captain of Davis Cup at 18, I was already in the Davis Cup squad, so I was really uh, somebody. The personality of Adriano is incredible, and nothing to do with the personalities. Of, I have to say that that we have now in the Italian Federation, and uh, and then it was was good help. But uh, the um, 
the best help for, for myself, you know, because I was able to be very international. I was always uh, willing to travel, very unusual for Italian. I had a French coach uh, at some point, uh, Georges Deniot was also coaching D4G. I learned French language very soon. I was spending a lot of time there. This uh, gave me a really big boost to be international. So I, I was prior, my, my original coach, uh, uh, Maestro Rasici, he was always telling me that you need to be international mentally. This I carry for all, all, uh, all life as a player and, and then as a coach, as an example. And, and the traveling is university of life. You know, you, you, you get more mature. You, can, you, never, you never refuse to have confrontation for other, with the players from other culture, other country, in different surfaces. And that was my really support. You know, I mean, the, the institution, the federation, has the duty to support uh, by, by the Olympics uh, uh, rules, uh, at least in Italy, the best players. So they are doing nothing more than what they're supposed to do for their, for their role. Uh, I like to emphasize the people, you know, the Maestro Azic, Adrio Banat, and then Paolo Bertolucci was another of the legends in Italy that was winning Davis Cup in the 70s, was my coach. Antonio Zugarelli, another one of the three out of the four Mosqueteers, Italian Mosqueteers we call, was coaching me. So the, the culture and the human stories, you have to always look at the human story behind, you know, that what, uh, what makes, uh, makes the, the difference, makes it trigger your motivation, trigger your uh, bouncing back difficulties. So you don't want to look at any system. You want to look at what the what the human part does, and, and the people next to, next to the, the player choose to be next to them, uh, which is happening big time now nowadays with the great success of Italian tennis. Uh, the story is behind. Story is behind. That's that's I'm I'm really it's very clear for me. It's very obvious that that's the reason. Yeah, Claudia, great points there. So I have a couple of follow-ups. So one about is it just um, dive a little deeper into you know, when you said that we have to look at the human story. So how do we, how do we do that? Well, you have to look when you see somebody have successful, give me an example, Matteo Berrettini, if you want to talk about him. I remember him uh, uh, when he was 18. So pretty, not, not that, that young, you know, at the end of the junior and the Vincenzo Santopadre is coach, which is from Rome, like me, he grew up with me in the same club, and, and we always been together. I think I was a bit older, so probably look a little bit at me as an example. He asked me, he said, Claudio, you, you are in the States. Uh, I was, I know there is a family here. You know, that time was uh, Gianluigi Quincy was the superstar, you know, born in 96. Uh, there's another boy that is growing a lot. Uh, it's, I think he's very good. Uh, there is a chance to see if there is a spot in college for tennis, you know, and uh, Okay, I will ask us here and there some coaches and they say, no, that's not interesting for us. It's not good enough. You know, the results are not good. We have better options. And we are talking about Matteo Berrettini. So the, the Vincenzo Santopadre believed on him so much. Uh, he sacrificed. He was traveling with him. But nobody even knows who he is. And that's what it counts, you know, because now jumping on the, on, the, on the winning car, it's very easy. But you have to look what's happened three years ago, five years ago, ten years before. And, and Vincenzo Santopadre is still with him. Those are the best stories when they stay a long time. And so because the human relation, uh, coach and player, the empathy, you know, empathy comes from Greek in pathos. So one is in the motion of the other. That's what it counts. The empathy, the, the, the care, you know, the families knows the, 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 you know, the trust uh, that the coach players in the coach and vice versa brings the improvement, uh, rise the level and, and brings the great results. So this is only one. That's what I mean with looking the story behind. So the story of Vincenzo Santopadre as a coach with Matteo Bertini as a player is without any doubt the, the foundation of the historical 
for, for us at least the results that happening right in these days, like a few hours ago, Matteo uh, Buka has got in the semi-final Wimbledon against Urkacz and, and, and still still there. Yeah, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of great uh, accomplishments from uh, Berrettini, and that that's really eye-opening. You know, I don't think many people know that. Uh, you know, he wasn't uh, known or thought of to be a, a big talent. You know, at that time that you mentioned. So, um, yeah, and in terms of um, empathy, you know, that's when I was doing some research on uh, your coaching. Uh, I think you gave a presentation on empathy. So, was that pretty much just? you know, the coach uh, empathizing with the player and understanding like what they're going through and what motivates them and things like that. Is that kind of the main, you know, aspect of, of what you were talking about? Yeah, coaching is my life and uh, I, I keep studying, I keep research. Uh, coach has a lot of responsibility. One of them is to create a team around because, you know, you need the, the highest you go as a level, the, need, the more you need a professional figure around the player to support every as- aspect of the top level. Uh, for example, the strength and conditioning coach. Uh, and, um, you know, I make the analogy with the musical orchestra. You know, the, the coach has the, uh, as the, I'll say, the stick that conducts the music, so responsible for the, for the music. Uh, and, but there is a guy that's played the violin much better than the, than the than director. So, but the coach decides, the, the director of the, the orchestra decides when the violin has to be played because he's responsible for the music, which is the player. So you have to be really well balanced, uh, keep studying. You know, my, most, the, my main statement is that uh, teaching and learning is, is eternal cycle. You know, if you're a teacher, you cannot stop to be uh, a student. So you have to keep studying, create this atmosphere, this good balance around the player. Uh, it's very, uh, it's a job at 360 degrees. You have to invest a lot on yourself as a coach. And uh, yes, this is the foundation for tennis players. To create possibility opportunities for top level and results at the top level. Very nice, Claudia. And yeah, it's very uh, excellent for um, you know these students of yours to uh, have somebody who played the violin so well and then now conducting. I want to go back to your professional career and and ask you uh, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned from, from your experiences on the tour that maybe you wish that when you were starting out on the tour that you had known those, those, um, those points at that time? You mean uh, uh, lessons from the court or, or off court? You know, they could be either. I mean, just, just generally, you know, some principles that, you know, had you known in the beginning of your, your professional career, perhaps, you know, you could have become number one or, or you know, higher. Yes, I, I think the, the best lesson was uh, from, uh, from Stan Smith. You know, I had the chance to talk to him that he was uh, an incredible legend. And I had the chance to talk to him about uh, the boycott of Wimbledon 1973. You know, I'm a, a big passion for history of tennis. When the ATP is born in 72, he went through a huge step that all players, they get united to, for the rights of the players, you know, to, to back up uh, Nigi Pilic, that he was a victim of a huge abuse of power from ITF. And, and uh, Stan Smith won Wimbledon in 1972 and, and he, he boycott, so he didn't have the chance to defend his title. So I asked him, Mr. Smith, how could you have the courage to do something that uh, you will never have the time to get a benefit from what you're fighting for? You know, you're fighting for the next generation to create an association. And he told me, you know, that was the, was the not the convenient thing to do, but was the 
was the right thing to do. So I start to, the biggest lesson I ever had is from him and, and uh, to see that uh, what is right is not always what is more convenient. And, and very often, more often what you think happened that you have to choose that you want to, even if it's not convenient for you, you still do it because it's right. So this is the toughest, but the best lesson I ever had. And, and I try to keep in my mind and I try to pass to my students uh, as much as I can. And I will always grateful to Mr. Stan Smith for this great lesson I had. Yeah, beautiful, Claudio. Such a great lesson there. And so I guess, you know, to, to transfer that to your professional career, you know, where there's some, maybe sometimes where things were very difficult and then maybe you like didn't necessarily like go through with it where, you know, now with that lesson, like knowing that principle, you would have done the hard thing. Yeah, I did a lot of mistakes. You know, I think uh, uh, my my treasure, my value as a coach is coming from my mistakes more than from what I did right. Because I did all the mistakes possible uh, as I was junior world champion and my best rank is 71. I am very proud of what I did. I think if you look at the, the list of players I beat, it's pretty impressive. Starting from Mas Vilander, 1988, the best year he had. Uh, but you never know if the, the glass is half empty or half full. For me, it's half empty, but it's not. I cannot prove. But uh, yes, I, I did. Uh, I did mistakes, and uh, um, also my body. You know, the the science and uh, what we know as information for the body for conditioning was very rough at that time, and I uh, was too much going in the direction of power, power, power. So I had surgery on my back at 27 years old. Don't forget the average of top hundred at that time was with 23 years old. And nowadays is about 29 in the men's. So I was 27. I felt already a bit older and maybe the, the best was already passed. I was, uh, I was just influenced negatively from a prejudice that was totally nonsense. But I didn't have many tools to judge, you know. So after I came back from surgery on the same, on a initial disc, which nowadays would take two months time to, to recover, it took uh, almost a year to recover at that time. And then when I came back, I was feeling the same. I started to think what was the my chances to go back to the top. I lost some points in the ranking. And, but at least I started thinking I could have done and I had great uh, the luck to have incredible opportunities uh, uh, starting a career as a coach. So I anticipate my playing career to, you know, to quit two or three years earlier than what I could. But then I started a new career as a coach and that was a very good decision. One of the best decisions, maybe the best decision I ever took in my life, professionally at least. Yeah, it uh, must be a great feeling to to impact so many and, you know, teach uh, so many coaches as well at conferences and, and things like that. Um, so uh, interesting point about the, uh, you know, this, the science and fitness obviously has progressed a lot since uh, you were on tour and you mentioned kind of the focus on power. So I think this would be very interesting because a lot of players, especially amateurs, are still, of course, making a, a lot of mistakes in their physical training, particularly. So can you maybe give some specifics in terms of like, you know, the training that was uh, usually being done and like, what, what were those mistakes and then what, what should be happening instead? Yeah. Well, the focus of my time was a lot on explosive power it was very common to work physically with the track and field guys. I was training with a long jump, triple jump wow. uh, guys. So legs were very big, you know, you muscle your body too much because you have to carry for three hours. <laughs> The muscle are heavy, 
you see the body type of my time with the body type of the professional today is completely different. You see how skinny they are, starting from Djokovic. The mobility was not considered that important. It was some stretching here and there, but it was not now the mobility of Djokovic is one of the reasons why he's doing what he's doing. And uh, you can easily see when he plays. Body type is very skinny, very mobile and, uh, and light, so he can last a lot of 33. And I learned, you know, by doing mistakes a lot in that and, and in combination from great with great conditioning training, you know, one of the things of the most proud is that, that I, I understand that you need the conditioning training next to you as a coach job and to bring from other sports and to teach them what you need as a tennis coach for tennis players for the body. And I had, I had the luck to work with the best in the world. I can mention Marco Banigi, which is now the conditioning trainer of Novan Djokovic. <laughs> I worked with him for 15 years. I, I, I have the pride to bring him to tennis. He was working in another, he was a policeman in, in Italy and I convinced him to go to, to tennis in, 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 you know, in the past millennium in 1999 or something like that. And now it's Marco is a genius of this, of this part. I want to mention Ali Gallen, that he is the one who built Robin Soderling. I have the privilege to be the coach of Robin Soderling. I was called from number five in the world with number four with me. And Ali is for sure one of the uh, reasons why Robin did what he did. He, made, he, wrote, he wrote some of the page of tennis history, especially in Roland Garros, but not only. And, and so this part of... Uh, we, we've been a little bit of a guinea pig, guinea pig for, for, the, for the future. We had a lot of injuries. We quit the career much earlier, but at least we, we opened the door to what not to do. <laughs> And, and the, the coaching job uh, make me think of the mistakes I did and to not repeat them, to not make the young players to do the same mistake I did. And probably they did the same with the next generation. So it's, it's, a, it's a job that you pass through the generation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an artistic job. It's not, it's not a scientific job. You need the sensibility. You need to understand the people. You need the empathy. You need the... Uh, psychology. You, know, it's, you don't go by the numbers. You don't go by the book. Uh, and you want to go... By science, yes, but always driven by the by your feelings and your uh, experience by, as a coach, in, in my opinion. For sure, Claudia, love that. And you mentioned bringing top talent from other sports. So I was curious: uh, are there any particular sports that that tend to transfer well in terms of like the the fitness principles coming to tennis, or you know, kind of similar question? You know, what, what which sports did these um, uh, fitness experts come from that were able to provide uh, the, the help and a progression to tennis fitness? Uh, there is, there's a variety of examples. If you look uh, in the tennis world in the nowadays, uh, Kyrgios loves basketball. I'm sure that his conditioning coming from, from basketball, a lot of basketball, because I saw him in the tournaments that he loves to play basketball. But meanwhile, he, he gets really good for jumping, change directions, you know, to... Uh, to be called coordination skills. You know, there are many sports. We have unbelievable example that is a good example for the future in Italy with uh, Yannick Sinner. Yannick Sinner was not a skier. He was a European champion of skiing at 12, 13 years old. So, so this main sport was not even tennis. And you see a lot of this uh, uh, institutional uh, uh, certification. They, they, they go by the age and say, you have to do this from 8 to 10 years old, from 10 to 12, like everybody grows in the same way. Sinner was not even a main, main sport tennis, but he was incredible athletes. And, and the lack of tennis is that uh, uh, some coaches saw him in the mountains, believed in the mountains, as I, you know, most of the skiers do. 
And they realized that he was incredible gifted for tennis. And, and the luck was that Yannick started to like tennis more than ski and he left ski. The ski people in Italy is upset because he, they lost a great <laughs> potential skier. And, and, and tennis great, uh, got a great, uh, of course, uh, prospect, which is already top 20, 90 years old. And I like to remind that uh, me and Yannick Sinner, we are in the special club of teenagers winning ATP event in Italy. You know, he beat my record after 34 years for two months. But now it's still me and me and him in this club, and maybe Lorenzo Musetti will join soon. I guess before he's, he's 20 years old, I'm pretty sure. But it's great to be with him in this group. And 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 the ski ski, I see him as, as a skier when he changed direction when they open the court, they go to the side. He's so powerful, so stable, uh, like Djokovic. Not to coincidence, Djokovic was a great skier too. You know, so they they don't lose the court because they have so much power, lateral movement, and come back. They don't lose the court, even being pretty tall guys. So this is one example. If you want to go on and talk about Italian players, uh, what we mentioned before about the history behind, the story behind uh, Lorenzo Sonego. Lorenzo Sonego was a soccer player. He was playing Torino. It's very traditional, a soccer team in Italy, football team in Torino, his city. If you see when he went in the center court with Roger Federer two days ago, he had the mask of Torino. And so he's a big fan of Torino team. And, um, and he was playing soccer very well. But his coach, uh, G. Barbino, believed on me as, on him as a tennis player. And, and the first step was to convince him to play tennis when he was 14. And he was by far, was very far from being at the top of his age group in Italy. But with the work, with the believing of Gipo on him and to keep feeding the confidence and never give up his incredible fighter, incredible athlete. And he was able to never stop progressing. Uh, arriving at the age, I think, 25 years old, uh, beating Djokovic and being the top, uh, I think, 20, 25, and being in the center court to give a hard time to Federer. And this is another story that has nothing to do with system. You know, the, 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 the word that I like the least in tennis is a system. There is no system here. There is stories, there is a heart, there is a, um, uh, feelings and, and, uh, and uh, fighting spirit, bounce back, uh, difficulties. Uh, that's what makes the, the player going to this level. A very fascinating insight, Claudia. I'm, I'm sure the audience really appreciates, you know, um, learning how these players became so great. And there's this book called Range, uh, which is a great book. And, you know, it talks about how a lot of people think that, you know, they, they always think about Tiger Woods, where he, you know, he specialized from like age two or something, only golf. But, you know, they forget that, you know, for Roger Federer, for example, he actually played a lot of sports when he was young. And developed, uh, you know, athletic uh, talents. And then it's interesting to hear that, likewise, with a lot of Italian players, they the same thing uh, that they've done. So um, I know it's tough to pinpoint, uh, but like, what is the secret to <laughs> the success for uh, the Italian players? Uh, you know, because you've had so much success, uh, you know, from your countrymen's, uh, you know, uh, tennis playing. Yeah, for the men's now and, and 10 years ago for the women, don't forget that we had a full Italian final and US Open, Penetta Vinci 2015. And, and again, you have to look back each one by one. I just repeat what I said before. You have one by one story behind people behind uh, going through a hard time. Roberta Vinci, for example, I remember she was maybe 25. Uh, I had, I had uh, lunch with her. She said, you know, I'm thinking to slow down my tennis. She was maybe 18 in the world. And, and uh, she didn't give up. I said, Roberta, you have to play, especially on grass and fast course. You just slice back and has no one the same in, in the world. 
So luckily she keep playing and then she find the right balance, the right coach, the right person. And very late, Benet, Vinci, Schiavone, they all won so much, but they all won after 30 years old. And Sara Rani, she went to Spain, so she is Italian, but uh, like Fognini, tennis-wise, we could be grateful to Spain as a country because they grew up in Spain, Fognini and Pernetta as well. So Pernetta, Rani, and, and I'm talking about uh, slam winners or finalists in the women. Uh, Pernetta won the US Open, Rani won the final in French Open. That was in Spain, and, and they find outside Italy their, their pathway, and could be Fognini. Uh, so... The secret is that there is uh, there is no secret. There is the 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 secret is the people. The people that uh, the the balance you find around you, the um, the love for the game. Maybe if I have to mention one secret, the Italians were able to love the game. That's that that's the secret. The love for the game and and that helped them to never give up and keep improving. Keep believing, and, and and not only the players, but the coach around them. The private is a private product that uh, makes this possible, and that's that's a secret. Now it's not a secret anymore because I told you, but uh, <laughs> but that's, that's that's the reason. That's that's obvious and and clear, and you just have to observe the reality. In the last five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, and the, the, so much traveling we did. Uh, I talked to Leonardo Caperchi, is the one who brought first Fognini in the top 100. He said that I felt that Fognini was something special when he started to win in Argentina. Now we got the respect tra- by traveling. Traveling is very important. And we've been traveling a lot. And when we start to beat the others in, outside Italy, even though we have a lot of tournaments in Italy, which helps. But that when we get the respect years ago and, and we transfer this respect to the next generations. And, and that's, that's how we came to the, to the nowadays situation. Beautiful stuff, uh, Claudio. Um, you know, going back to your career, uh, I was wondering, because this could help a lot of players in the sense that sometimes when we we face, uh, or a lot of times when we face higher ranked players where we, we've already lost before we stepped on the court, yet, you know, you were able to defeat some really great players and you mentioned, you know, beating uh, Mats Wilander. So if you could think back to that match, I'm curious to hear your your, your mindset preparation, you know, when you're, you're faced against, you're facing against a, a higher ranked player, like what was your approach to that match? I was very nervous. Matt's won the Australian open and Miami. I was in Monte Carlo and uh, I was able to beat Aaron Krikstein before Matt's. You know, I went through the qualies. I asked for wildcard. Luckily I didn't get a wildcard. Probably if I would get a wildcard, I would never do that because I, I developed incredible strengths and confidence by winning three matches, including Wally Mazur, great players in qualis. Then I beat Peter Lundgren in first round, that he was top 25 in the world, a Swedish guy. And then I beat Aaron Krikstein, which was top 10. And uh, I, I think I played better against Krikstein than against Wilander. Now, Krikstein, I beat him 7-6-6 love, and this set is for sure the best set I ever played. And Aaron Krikstein, you know that he was a champion. And, and there was uh, a lot of Italian watching me. And I went, you know, like you take a wave on surfing and you stay on the wave. And I went to play center court uh, trying to do my best. I was not believing at all that I could win. And I lost. I was down 6-2-3-1. It's funny, I have the DVD of the match that I was able to save. So I guess sometimes I look at it. I showed this to Robin Soderling. He was very impressed. And then a 3-1, I said, okay, now I just want to try to win the set. I practically, you know, the commentator was saying, Pistolesi is already in the shower, things like that. 
And, and then I start to fight. I start to find my forehead. It was my best shot. And then I got into the flow. You know, only many years later, I, I learned what the flow is. The flow is what the, you, ch- you change the perception. I felt, I was thinking, why is he playing so slow? He's number one in the world. But he was not playing so slow. My perception was, was bad. You know, I, I was preparing earlier. Uh, and I was, I, I got the plan. I just have to be patient, to move in a little bit, to wait the right ball, go around my forehand and play winner. I think I played 21 winners. I won the tiebreak second set, uh, very tough tiebreak. I played volleys, a very difficult volley, which normally I was not playing. And then I promise you, when I sit down at the end of the second set, I said, there's no way I'm going to lose this match. You know, I'm going to win, I'm going to win 6-1 or 6-2. And, and I won 6-2, not to be arrogant, but the feeling was incredibly clear that I, I had him in my hands. You know, and, and, and uh, this happened very rarely for me that... I was not at the top, but I think, I feel that the top players, they re- can recall this flow to rise the level when they need. And, and for me, it was coming sometime randomly. It came maybe three times in my life. This was likely one of these times. So it was, was my six matches in the tournament and, and I was able to beat Mats. And uh, my best ranking was 71 in the world. Uh, what I want to add is also the ranking is enough to judge a career. You know, what is best ranking? You know, that if you want to measure a player career, but uh, you don't have to forget at that time, Davis Cup was very important. You know, I won the Italian championships with beating Cancelotti and great players. Uh, that was a big title to win with don't give any DTP points. I, I was junior world champion, but the junior at that time, Bruno Orezar was already very high ranked in ATP in the final and Orange Bowl in Flamingo Park. So there are many things you did that don't count for the ranking. And also you have to look what you beat. You know, so I beat Sergi Bruguer, Alberto Mancini, Thomas Muster, uh, Wheaton, Crickson twice. You know, I beat several times top 10 or top players, uh, Mark Rosé. Juan Aguilera, so so many that makes me feel even more regretting that I was not consistent enough because I, I, I should have do that more often because I was able to do it. I proved it so many times. So again, the regret is when you finish the career is, is heavy to deal with, but nothing you can do. But what you can do is if you are a coach is to keep in mind that use it as your values to transfer to the player you coach. Yeah, hundred percent, Claudio. Um, so when I talked to Rick Macy, he talked about uh, just flipping a switch mentally, and it sounded like it, it was either two one or three one down in the second that you were able to. It sounds like flip the switch all of a sudden uh, and decide that you wanted to to win that match. And very interesting, you know. Even you know before the match, you didn't necessarily think that you know you you had a chance and things like that. But what? How did you flip the switch? Like, what did you? How are you able to do that? Because I'm sure that a lot of players, they want to be able to do the same thing, that they're playing a match and all of a sudden they tell themselves, you know what? No, I'm going to win. And then they actually do it. So how did you do that? I don't know. I didn't do it on purpose. You know, I was I was there and I was thinking uh, 6 2 three, one. I was a bit embarrassed. Could easily, if I go like this, it's 6 2 six, one. Uh, Television, live in Italy. Monte Carlo is a very, very popular tournament uh, in Italy. Uh, all the, my parents watching, everybody watching, and I said I, I need to do something. I had to uh, focus on something. My coach, Zugarelli, was helping me a lot uh, to, to keep fighting, to find a way. I think I played one special game that changed my perception. So I think it came. 
naturally. I didn't uh, decide. I mean, I tried to keep fighting. I tried to keep fighting. Don't give up on uh, be just play another 20 minutes and get uh, beat up two and one or something. And I start to feeling, to feel. Feel is much more important than thinking. So I felt. I didn't think about that. And I felt that it was possible to, to rise the level, to be more competitive, well, one by one, the game. Five ball and then tie break and the tie break. I said, okay, here's the chance, you know. So I fed my own uh, self confidence by fighting, by fighting to refuse to to just accept that he was better and that's it. He was number one in the world. That it, at the end of the year, in this moment, was number two in the world. Uh, but but you know, by far the best player of the 1988 with three quarters of a slam. So I, it came. It came by feeling, not by thinking. Very nice, Claudio. And then, you know, and a kind of a related question is you mentioned uh, getting into uh, flow uh, and that you, you know, you learned more about what that was, you know, after your career. But what were some of the commonalities like each time you got into flow where were there certain things that you did before that to help it happen or any any insights on that? No, I was doing a regular routine. I was playing Madrid tournament before I lost second round. I went to Monte Carlo with my coach, but I was feeling very good with my coach in this moment. I trust him a lot. Torino Zugarelli was top player, one of the team uh, musketeers that I told you. And I was happy. I was happy to, to be there. And uh, I was upset to not give the wild card, to not get the wild card. That time they never give to Italians. Now they give Italians all the time. <laughs> but it was my luck, you know, because I, I, I went through these qualists and winning a lot of matches is the best, is the best uh, medicine uh, if you don't have enough confidence, you know. So I earn it on court, game by game, point by point, and feeding my self-confidence, my self-believing until I did probably the best results of my life. I don't know, because also one ATP event at, at 19. But anyway, that's that's what happened in, in Monte Carlo. So I won, uh, I won against Philander April 21st, 1988. April 21st is the birthday of Rome, my city, you know, this, me as a Roma, we have a lot of pride to be Roman and try to, to prevail, to know, to, to have this sense of uh, <laughs> complex of superiority. So I was feeling also there was the, the Rome birthday, the day. So I was, I, I said, I sh- it'd be great to do something special on this day. And, and likely I did. Very cool. And, and this, this next question is totally random, but so the, the former coach of my favorite um, team uh, in the EPL uh, was Mourinho and he just went to uh, AS Roma. So any thoughts on that? You know, are you excited or what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be more happy. It was totally surprising. But uh, no, I'm, yeah. as I say, coaching is a lot in my life. I look a lot at uh, other sport coaches. In America, the coaching is amazing. You know, the the Super Bowl is dedicated to Coach Lombardi. You know, it's has a lot of meaning. The Super Bowl, they they name it out Vince Lombardi, is a coach. So imagine the uh, the importance of coaches in tennis is not enough, uh, in my opinion. Um, Developed, I'm very proud of being the father of ATP coach uh, category. I invented this coach uh, uh, in 2010 before. I was elected in the player council for four mandates in a row, and I was able to, with the help of the ATP, to create this category. Now it's the most ambitious uh, title as a coach, because I believe coaching is life. You know, coaching is teaching, and and uh, and this uh, not only sport, and and this is the mission we have all for the next generations. In Japan, for example, the only category doesn't have to bow in front of the emperor 
is the is the teachers. You know, this is incredible lesson of culture Japan gives to us. Japan, I know because I've been living there. It's a very important country of my life. Been traveling 35 years, so the coaching is all over the world uh, the key of the future of this of the humanity. So I'm very proud to be a coach. And Mourinho is one of the best example. I can go on and tell you more about the coaching. I'm reading writing a book from Big Bill Tilden. You know, said uh, 100 years ago he wrote. You no, know, it was not only one of the best player ever. He won seven times in Wimbledon, but he wrote about coaching. Bill Tilden in the 20s, exactly 100 years ago. And uh, he wrote that uh, you want to treat every student as an individual, not uh, uh, everybody the same. So he's saying what I'm telling you now, Bill Tilde was writing is, is in Italian, is the code of the game. You know, Luca Bottazzi, friend of mine, he translated and is uh, goosebump to read somebody writing about the coaching 100 years ago and tell things that is, fits perfectly what my experience teaching in my life. So this is also I want to share with you this this story that I was as recently find out about it. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Beautiful, uh, Claudio. Yeah, just... uh... Love hearing your insights. Um, so uh, in terms of coaching, you know, like we talked about, you, you've you coached so many great players. Uh, I'm wondering about, you know, how you're able to to bring uh, Simone Bolelli's ranking so high. I, I want to say you you put it up by like 200 spots or something like that. It was a lot. So, I mean, I guess generally talk about uh, your your experience with Simone and, and, and how you're able to really push his ranking up very high. Yeah, there is a sweet and bitter thinking about uh, my story with Simone because uh, the beginning was fantastic. I think 10 years ago or more, was, I started with him uh, actually 15 years ago, it was 2006. He was 19 years old, not known as a junior, coming from injuries. And I saw something special on him. And uh, we made the goal setting was to go to the, to the top, you know, to the top of Caribbean, even number one in the world. And, and uh, <laughs> everything we did for the next three years was fitting what, what we said. He never stopped progressing. And in 2008, if you look who he beat, it's impressive. He beat Del Potro in French Open. He beat uh, Mano de Pedra Gonzalez in Wimbledon. He was 12 in the world and with three tiebreakers. And, and, and he was third round Wimbledon to the round... Uh, French Open, he did something very years before nobody did. Imagine at some point he was in the final of uh, uh, Munich ATP event. He lost to Mano de Pedra Gonzalez, Fernando Gonzalez, 7-6 in the third. And in the same age, in the same tournament, uh, Gonzalez from Chile, uh, Berrettini lost 11 years later against Garin, 7-6 in the third, <laughs> in the final. So 
Until that point, the career of Bolelli, age and ranking, was exactly the same like Berrettini. Obviously, now Berrettini changed gear, he's going straight to the top. And I'm sure, it, not only me, I think if you ask anyone who was there in those years, they, they were shocked that uh, he was top 40 in the world and, and he was uh, decided to split with me. And the reason is not the tennis reason. I don't want to go back and that's negative talking, but it was not the tennis reason. It was, uh, you know, some when politics step into the sport, it cannot be good. It cannot be good. So I don't want to say more than that, but I, I like Simone. He's in semi-final Wimbledon in doubles today. So it's another semi-finalist Italian. Uh, maybe it's, it's a sign of destiny that, you know, Berrettini, Bolelli, I think a lot of similarities until some point. Difference that Berrettini kept going with his coach, kept going with his believing, kept going in his project, ignoring the, you know, anything different than that. And Simone was maybe not strong enough in this, uh, in this, in this matter, but, you know, he's still great, great person, great family, and still talking to his father and his, his friends and, and, uh, and I'm so sorry for him because, you know, when I stopped with him, I got a call from Michael Berrer from Germany and very good two years with him in Michael. It's one of the best personal athletes I ever met. And then came Robin Soderling. You know, maybe I could never do that if I was keep going with, with Simone, but tennis days, no if. But I want to I want to say what we did from uh, 258 to 36 in two and a half years, in three years about, and and winning us so many good, he beat Safin, he beat Marat Safin. In, in Barcelona, when he was 20 years old, he, the, if, if you leave, see the list, uh, people he beat is scary. He beat uh, Schutler and Chilic in Zagreb. Uh, you know, it's we can, I can go on a lot. You know, so he beat Karlovic in Davis Cup in, in Croatia. Kras Karlovic was 14 in the world. It was, it was really scary results for for that time. So I have great, uh, great, sweet memories, and I want to stay with them. And I will try to cut the the bitter up of, about what he could have been and never happened. You know that. That we don't know, we never know, we don't have no proof. So I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about great four years of my life I dedicate to that, maybe three and a half, and, and uh, maybe open the door also as an example. I think without maybe for many young kids, we now named uh, Sonego Perrettini, <laughs> uh, Garuso, Travaglia, Sinner, uh, uh, Musetti, etc. I'm sure that he was, he was uh, showing very powerfully that Italians can, can go all the way. And now, now is happening. Yeah, just again, you know, incredible results from the Italians. So, you know, just diving a little bit deeper into the, um, uh, you know, your work with Bolelli, um, how were you able to to get him to rise? Like, uh, you know, I'm wondering kind of a similar question, like, you know, you have maybe an amateur player, like they have a low ranking, whatever. Like what what things did you do? You know, maybe what types of goals, things like that? Like what, what did you do to, to push him up? like uh, you know in that type of a rise first of, first of all the schedule you know the different surfaces makes big difference i realized soon that he was a player for faster faces grass indoor that was his best he was good enough to play very well on clay but his body type was not for clay you know and uh, his backhand was natural incredible good impact the sound of the ball was very full i loved that even when he was 300 he was playing in futures and the forehand was more artificial, so I spent tons of hours to fix the forehand moving to the right. You know, but the, the more there's a big difference when you say I want to I want to practice forehand. There are so many different forehands. You know, there's already one big difference if you go from right to left. You play from the left corner, inside out, inside in is one thing, which he was very very good at that. 
But when you're moving to the right, he was struggling to play many balls moving from left to right, you know, cover the right corner. So we had to make so many with the basket, feeding, 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 to try to fix, you know, also with the help of conditioning trainer, which was Marco Panicchi, uh, to fix this part, to, to be solid there. And at that time, the reputation he had that the forehand was the best shot, but it was not true. I knew it. Everybody thought it was, because it was so much work on that and so much repetitions and, and, and variations on, on uh, be ready for everything. And it was like a hammering the ball with the forehand for inside out, but it was also very good on covering the right part. And then it can do for three, four shots, you know, which happen in indoor or hard court. You know, US Open beat Benetton, was a fantastic match. I remember, I remember it was very solid there. And the backing was very natural. So he was returning well, mixed it up with the slice. Was, was, uh, so I, I created a complete player. You know, transition to the net was getting better. Play a lot of doubles with Fognini. You know, we start very young to play Fognini Bolelli, which ended up to win a slam at some point uh, years later. Uh, serve was one of the best serve. Berrettini now is, I think, is the best server ever in Italy, but not many Italians were serving well. You know, like Bolandri, Starace at that time were not serving well. He started to count on his serve as a, as a weapon, a real serious weapon. So that's that's what I did with him and the trust. And the many times we traveled and the people thought it was my son. You know, say, what time is son playing? So no, I don't have son. It's not my son. It's my player. Because they felt that the, the, the trust and, and, the, and the relation was so close and uh, that they they thought that was my it was my son so when this came down empathy you know there's the best level of empathy and and I go back to empathy and, and when this was uh you know start to have a praxis in, in this uh not not for me or simone fault then everything fall apart and the career is i'm sad i'm really sad to say that uh, by far the best rank he had in his career was when he was 23 when he was with me at 36 in the world he never got even close in, in singles he did great single doubles it's not the end of the world he's still a great person but this is a pity that uh, you know what fognini did he could have also done or, or sepi to go top 20 at least but you know again there's no if in tennis exactly exactly so um, kind of, you know, uh, obviously, uh, like a very specific question. I think you mentioned that you his serve started to become a weapon. Do you re- remember what exactly it was that you improved on uh, his serve that you can share with the audience? Yes, I remember exactly because I like to work with analogies. You know, it works really well to make the players understand what you mean. And uh, he's from Bologna, but he moved to Rome to practice. In, in that time, my academy called Forum is a beautiful place. So we go around Rome. In Rome, there is a tradition that uh, the, every day at noon, there is a cannon that uh, shoots to the city, not, not with a bullet, of course, because the popes in the 18th century, they want to make uh, exactly two, noon o'clock, noon, uh, everybody knows it's noon. And, and uh, because the, 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 the bell of the churches were not a good time. So we, we see this cannon shooting and, and the sound of the cannon I use this example for him. It's called the Janicolo, this place. So when I say Janicolo, it means the cannon shooting. So the acceleration of the serve has to be like the cannon shooting. I want to hear the, I want to hear the sound of like, Pum! you know, that this is like uh, no reply. So the acceleration has to stay loose and concentrate the acceleration exactly on this moment. And the people thought that was crazy because, you know, you say a few things during the match and I'll say Janicolo. And the people said, this guy is gone. <laughs> and <laughs> and Marie, was laughing because he knew exactly what I mean. So to not lose the speed on the surf, even second surf, you know, you change the speed, but you don't change the speed. So that was the key point. If you, if you mention, you will remember. 
how I can explain to him to, to make a lot of free points, aces, but not only aces, a lot of free points from serve because acceleration was spectacular, you know, in, in every shot from him. You know, the acceleration of the racket of Bolelli was famous in the world. And even Roger Ferry, we have also, Roger likes him very much, have the disgusting luck to be asked from Federer coach to practice with Bolelli very often. So I have so many photos with me and Roger and Simone that they, again, show off a lot, you know, but, you know, because he likes, because I think in some way maybe remind, remind him a little bit one and back end and this. So that that's when I, I remember exactly how I was working with him to have this, uh, this weapon uh, for surf. Very cool. Uh, I think I'm going to go post on Simone's uh, Instagram or something. Say, don't forget the cannon. Um, but yeah, yeah that, that <laughs> but um, so what what is that point? Uh, you know, is that once you get into the trophy position that you're saying uh, saying that phrase, that word or w- when was that that you would say it? Yeah, the pre stretching, you know, you do the pre stretching. And that you have to timing well. You know, you have, to, you have the timing in your head, like one, two, you know, have to be long, pre-stretching, don't rush. The danger is rush. Of course, the toss, the precision of the toss is crucial, but, you know, this level, they have a great toss. Then modify the toss a little bit if you're going to wide, but not too much, otherwise you're predictable. Uh, not only playing hard, but to variate the speed, the direction, the spin, and uh, to not be predictable. And I had the chance to play against the one person in my career. His name was Pete Sampras. <laughs> and I'm still impressed. Uh, he was pretty good. And I was pretty impressed that I could not, no way I could read this surf. You know, I, I was no way to pray for me, at least, you know. And then uh, David Sanguinetti, which I was coaching for 10 years, he played Sampras in Queens on grass, and he was, he was giving time because Sanguinetti was a genius of return, much better than me on reading. Them, you know, but when you don't read, even Roger Federer's serve is not the fastest, but is the better, best in the world for me because he's the one who hides the serve the most. First and second serve is more accurate. He has all the all the direction, all the all the spin. So I was trying with Simone, yeah, to to have the speed, but also to to, to have more variation, wide to the right, wide to the left, uh, body serve, mix it up with serve and volley. Variations is a key there. Yeah, for sure, Claudio. So shifting to to, to Robin Soderling, uh, obviously, you know, like you said, you know, one of the biggest wins ever against uh, Rafael Nadal, um, you know, top five player. Uh, just um, curious about your just generally your experiences with him. And then also, you know, how is he a different you know player from your other ex- experiences? Well, this is another unbelievable story. You know, life was very generous with me to give me amazing stories behind. Again, we talk about the story behind. If I tell you why, because it's curious, you know, he's Swedish, always had the Swedish coaches at some point after Magnus Norman, which was me, that I was coaching uh, not at that level. I was working as a practice partner with Monica Seles, but 20 years before I was not a coach. And he's a woman. Many years, so I didn't have that experience. You know, I coached, uh, yeah, Bolelli was 30, Barry was 40, Fabinetti was 40. It's a little bit long story for one, I can tell you how he chose me and 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 uh, and uh, how the, the, the life you never know the sliding doors, you know. So, shall I tell you? Sure, sure, yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So, so, I'm with uh, Michael Barrer in Helsinki Challenger. 2009, no, 2010, he played, he lose against the continent, 7-6 in the third, I think 13-11 in tiebreak in the third, and then one of the match points for Michael, uh, Henry Continent was very good single player before he's injured, then he great in doubles, but he was a very good single player. He came in and the ball was out, so Michael won the match. 
so he, he raised the, the arms and it was a Monday. And then the ball was called, the late call was called out, was called in. So they replayed the point, so he lost the match. So I was very upset, you know, very, and, and uh, so it was Monday. The next week we have another uh, challenger in Salzburg. So we have a few days free. No, it was Monday. So ATP was the week of ATP finals. No, 2000, uh, uh, 2009, sorry, it was 2009. So I go to London. ATP gave me the, you know, tennis family badge. So I can see the match. I consider ATP finals as my upgrading. And I want to see from close all the top players. It's nothing higher level than that. And I, I go in the hotel. The first person I see is Manus Norman with Robin Sodomy. And this Manus, I know him. I played with him. And he said, Claudio, hi, nice to see you. What you do here? You don't have a player? He said, no, I don't have a player. But a few, few days free, instead of going to Rome, home, I went. To, I came here before going to, back to Salzburg for the next challenge. I'm working with Michael Barrer. And, and Robin was there. And he heard that. So... I, long story short, after a couple of months, I was working with Robin. He won three titles in a row, round of 16 best results for him in Australia. I was doing great. I had the courage to ask him, say, Robin, why, how come that you are thinking of me? They asked me to, after minus complete this relation and coaching for him. So because I was so impressed that uh, remember when he went to London for, so yes, I remember, say, well, I heard that and, and for sure, somebody that is at the end of the year, yes, some free days to, to spend what he does, he goes to tennis tournaments. <laughs> so he was very impressed from that. And that's why I was guaranteed that you love you love game. And, and also, you know, I had uh, Bolelli beating Soderling in Monte Carlo, Sanguinetti beat Soderling in Helsinki. So I, some of my players beating, so probably this also helped. But the main reason is that he was impressed from this. So imagine if this much space of the ball of uh, a continent goes is called out, I would not go to London because they would have to play the second round on Wednesday and I would never coach Sodom. Wow. So imagine how the sliding door are and, and you don't know when it's when the chance is coming as a coach. And, and uh, so I think it's very fascinating, again, to look at the story behind. And that's, that's the reality of, of the tour, that you have to be there to know it. And I'm glad that sometime I have the chance to explain because it's the best favor I can give do not go in the misunderstanding of there is a system. I think system is very good until some point when you teach tennis. Of course, you need organization, but then you have to be flexible. No, many they are accused to be unorganized, but they're not unorganized, they are flexible, tailor-made job you have to do. So the story behind, you know, each, each successful story, there is a human contributes to, to that. I want, I want to say this again. Yeah, th thanks for that, Claudio. Super fascinating story. It's definitely a game of uh, inches, of millimeters, you know, in, more, in more ways than one. So in terms of Robin, um, what do you think was his biggest asset? And then also, what types of things did you work on with him? Robin, uh, uh, goal setting, first thing you do was number one, go to number one in the world and or winning majors. Couldn't be different to goal setting and start with somebody number five in the world, beating Nadal, Djokovic, and... Uh, I don't think he ever beat Federer. Oh no, he did. He did in French Open until so he beat all of them. So he was for sure, for sure ready to go. And that was the goal. And the start was fitting with the goal. So I had this first speech telling about uh, uh, to him, uh, have you been uh, ever number one in the world? No. So you have to do something that you never did before to get the results you never did before. Have you ever won a major? No. So where was the land to change something, to modify it or to add something that he never did before to go in this direction? And he completely got it. And uh, for example, swing volley, never play swing volley. 
in Rotterdam when he won the tournament in Rotterdam was a big win a bit Songa in the final was playing a lot of swing volley coming in and um, you know to to talk about the mental training you know to 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 be more into it inside himself on the mental train don't, don't let the emotions uh, control him but the other way around he has the one to control the emotion and utilize the emotions as a weapon instead of being his uh, you know his, his uh, limitation you know if you the emotions controls you especially when you get too angry too too anxious then it's like driving the car with the brake and brake on you know it doesn't go the car so you have to try to release the, the brake and, and to through the breathing, through the self-talking, we talk a lot about that, and uh, so it was working really well. At some point, he had 20 wins and, and one loss with the gold Dolgopolov in round of 16 of Australian Open. He lost that Dolgopolov played the, out really incredible from the clouds. He played an incredible match. Otherwise, he won every match, every match he played. Um, so that that was the main speeches. Do something you never did before and to be the, in, the, in the top of your emotion and come out with the best Robin possible in the most important moments. I have to add that Robin is a great person. His image, you know, the people don't know him as a person and I do and, and he's a fantastic man. He's, he's a great father now. He's very successful in his business and is, a, you know, Jenny, his wife, at that time his girlfriend is the best person, girlfriend of tennis player I ever met. You know, she was incredible, supportive. And we I never forget his speeches on YouTube that he says we after he won Rotterdam and, and with Ali Gallem, I mentioned before as well. It was like a little family, and we said we are the best team in the world. I was in tears. Still goes pump when I say it. So the empathy I create was fantastic and still very good friend with him. We're still very close and we talk a lot. So this is Another many reason I, I am proud and, and I, I admit that I was very lucky in my in my career as as a player and coach to have all these opportunities. Yeah, that's uh, what can I say? That's beautiful to hear. And um, I mean, you've done such such great work. So you know, it seems it you know I think it's really uh, a theme here that you know it's so important to have a great coach, somebody who's observant and knows a lot about the game. Because it seems like every time you work with a, a player, you're able to not only help them uh, achieve, you know, set and achieve goals, but you also find like the areas that they can improve upon and things like that. So I guess one question is, generally, when you work with players, did you work on their weaknesses or did you? try to amplify the strengths more or was it kind of a mix usually? Well, vocabulary that you use is very important. So you don't want to say is uh, weaknesses is something mm -hmm. to improve. You don't want to yeah. say this is uh, bad is something to improve. And, and uh, you want to feed the confidence and not, uh, in, not, it's obvious that you need to work like everybody. I'm impressed from Nadal, Federer, Diogo, which all they talk is how to get better. Uh, how they can improve. I remember Nadal in Italian Open once you just get number one in the world uh, and it was so, so into the toss of serve with uh, Uncle Tony who was maybe 20 years old and it was so much look at this guy's number one in the world he's only wants to get better so uh, this is this is the, the vocabulary use is always in positive and you want to feed the confidence of the strengths but also to take as a challenge uh, goals that uh, you never did before. So you ever you never want to, uh, for example, Robin Soderling, he never won a tournament back to back. When I went to Rotterdam, he won the tournament the year before in 2010, 2011. I said, no, take is a big goal. And what he did, he won. 
So you have back-to-back, two winners in a row, the same tournament. Uh, you have to always search for this kind of things as a challenge. Uh, try to stay away from uh, negative, you know, uh, negative uh, talking. This is the problem, you know. This you are, you are hired to find solutions, you know. There, I hear too much of, uh, you know, the problem is this is beginning of the speech, but you are not hired if you are a coach to identify the problem, yeah, or at least if you do, you need to provide for the solution. You know, you are a solution factory. You know, that's uh, that's your duty as as a coach, not uh, not the guy who judge. You know, is coming uh, too much of this. Uh, this is the problem, and that's it. You know, they don't follow up what after the like identify the problem is is their is their duty. Is is completely wrong. You know, you 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 better change the job. You you need to help. You need to support. And coaching is a supporting work, like a doctor. You know, you, you need to, to find a cure, not the disease. You know, and of course, you have to do the diagnosis, but, you know, I, I, I want to I get better. I want to get very, very healthy as a tennis player. And so you provide for solutions and at least try in cooperation, of course, with the player. You cannot ignore the player. You want to take out from the player things more than putting in. This is another typical uh, things that I see too much of. Uh, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Not ignore what the player feels. So you want to ask him, what do you feel about that? You know, and let him talk. Listen to the to the player. You don't want to just talk. You want to listen to the player. You can many they ignore what the player feels, which is the biggest mistake you can do as a coach. You know, you have to listen to the player. And each time you start from scratch. You know, I had the chance to with Judy Murray once to play with LTA. Uh, I did the one uh, seminar for three days. And I keep insisting on Taylor May, Taylor May. So Judy nickname, and she gave to me one of my nickname is the Taylor. You know, I'm so proud of that coming from Judy, and, and uh, because that's that's the reality. Again, a coach has to be observer of reality. The reality is each player is different. Each player, like Bill Bill Tilden said 100 years ago, you need to treat each one as individual, and and, and you want to start from scratch and respect the characteristic of each player. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Claudio. And so, um, you know, a related question, you know, you're talking about the power of language and now we have to be careful with that and build confidence and find solutions uh, for the players uh, and ourselves, of course. Um, so you mentioned that you worked a lot on Robin Soderling's uh, his, his self-talk. So, of course, it's kind of similar, but what types of maybe phrases was he saying to himself in his self-talk that you you know, you changed to him, uh, you know, his language. And then what, what was the language instead that he would be using? Well, we go a lot in a, in a very uh, private and confidential area. <laughs> but I can tell you that that uh, the balance is the goal. You know, you don't want to have any extreme. You know, you want to stay in the, in the middle and to always try to be objective and, and come out with the with a comment to yourself, what's uh, what's happening around you with a good balance. That is, you 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 don't. If you see something is very extreme, it's always uh, you have to be worried. You know, you you want to find something that is very well balanced. Then there are more details that I don't feel to tell you. Sorry about that, but this, you know, it's part no of problem, the, no curse words. Part, no curse part, words. Part <laughs> of the of the very very deep uh, relation that uh, coach player we had. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Thanks, Claudio. So I guess one other question is, you know, you, you have, um, as we talked about before we started recording, you c- consistently are learning, uh, trying to improve your knowledge. And, you know, you said 
a powerful thing. You know, if, if you think that you as a coach know everything, then you should pretty much, you know, you should stop coaching. Um, so how is it, how best do we improve our knowledge uh, of the game? Like, what do you do to, to keep improving your knowledge of tennis? Well, as a coach, uh, I have to be uh, sometimes a thief. You know, I have to listen to other coaches. I have to keep reading book. I have uh, uh, the, the, main, uh, the main polar star is to trust, is to have self-confidence as a coach. And uh, the polar star is to, to be sure that you take a job only because you like it, not because you need it. You know, this is something I always suggest to young coaches. And uh, when, you know, the, the, the difficulties as a private coach sometimes is that the player are, are you to be the one who guide you and tell things that maybe he doesn't like to hear, but at the same time is the one who pays you. So the danger is that you have to pay your mortgage and the, the salary is coming from this player. And you know that if you say that there is something that is not right, it's, it's possible that he doesn't take it well and he fires you. But then you have to take the risk and the, the confidence of the coach that if you are, if somebody fires you, it can happen, you will find other players, you know, and, and uh, he's, he is losing you, you are not losing him if you are confident enough, you know. So I see a lot of, uh, too much of uh, try to, to pet like the cat, you know, to, to please the player, to not lose the job, you know. I have to say, I see especially young coaches that they like to be there, they like to have the badge, to travel, it's very cool, post, post on Facebook with the sunglasses and then in their wells, you know, it's, it's how many likes. That's not the reason why you want to do the coach. You, know, you want to do the coach because it's a mission. Be ready to say no. The beginning of the relation is so important. So if you feel that the beginning is not that great, take a lot of information, try to meet the parents or the most close people to the players. If uh, you have to create a team also with the family, and there is a relation uh, high level with the agents. You know, the player likes to have uh, uh, harmony around him. So you want to have a good relation with everybody around him. And if you smell that it's not going to work or it's going to be some conflict inside the team, you, you have to say no. Or you have to be ready to lose it, knowing that you, he's losing you, you know, because you give value to, to your work. You know, that's what I always tell myself. I never call once in my life a player to, can I coach you? Or uh, I was waiting that somebody looking for me, but this puts me in a stronger position. So that's, that's my philosophy, my way of looking at, at my job and always paid off very well. I, I was able luckily to have very high, I feel, and I'm so thankful to everyone, including today with you, to have this reputation to be, to be asked the questions and, and people even listen to my questions, my answers. <laughs> so it's a compliment. So, but that's, that's how I, I was able to, to do that through 10 years as a player and 25 as a coach. So 35 years of tennis plus the juniors so almost 40 years of being in the business at, at very high level. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, big kudos to the amazing work you've been doing, Claudio. So, you know, very interesting that you, you, you mentioned about, um, you know, not asking necessarily uh, players to, to coach and, 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 you know, how it's more powerful if they ask you. So is it in the beginning when you're coaching, do you have to do the opposite? Do you have to be the one asking for things? And then later on, is that when you kind of, you know, transition to not necessarily like asking for, for the positions? 
Well, uh, the beginning is tougher, of course, because people, they don't even know that you are a coach and they don't even know you. So uh, being, being a player helped me a lot. So being there, there and, and uh, with Takao Suzuki, another fantastic story of my, of my coaching life, which is uh, also, and I think back, it touched my heart so much. And Takao is like my, I call it my Japanese uh, little brother. And it happened that uh, when they see you play and they know that you are at the end of the career, it's possible that some young players, oh, this guy is still playing. Or maybe one day he can be a coach. You know, for example, uh, Yuzni, when, you know, the last year he played, uh, Shapovalov had a very good idea. Yuzni is incredible tennis mind. I don't know as, I don't know if, if they're still working together, but he did a great job with Shapovalov. And it's possible they think of you because they, they make two plus two. You know, this guy is a very good player. Also, they see if you're a good fighter on court, if you have the passion for the game, if you're a good strategy as a player. So automatically, if you've never been a player, which means a pro player, means in the, in the, in the major tournaments, then you can, uh, uh, you need to start a network and to maybe work with some uh, coach happened to me a lot. I, one of the many things I'm proud that I support uh, many young coaches, including my ex-player, for example, David Sanguinetti is a great coach. And as I, as I mentioned, many physical trainer, I promote young coaches and I open careers. I work with the GPTCA, and one of the founder of the Global Professional Tennis Coach Association, which I think is the best uh, certification um, company in the world for, for coaches at high level. So we, we opened the door because I think it's, it's good to, 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 to share. You know, it's also good for me to share exactly what I'm doing now. And uh, to share is good for me. It's good to, you know, to put the seed of what you believe, which is nobody has the monopoly of the truth, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to compare for young coaches, to make a sync, to agree, to disagree, to agree 50%. So you have to start to follow some of the coaches that have the name, uh, ask if you, they can mentor you and the mentor, you try to get a mentor for you, even invest on in yourself. Uh, try to attend uh, seminars and, and uh, writing things. Uh, try to start with juniors. Try to have uh, uh, prove yourself that you would improve player regardless the level of where you start with. You know, if you have a good junior, uh, it's, 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 it's already a good, good sign that you can show that you, you are able to, to improve players. You know? So it's a longer work. It takes longer to get respect and consideration from the top players. But happen all the time. You mentioned Mourinho, never, never played soccer at a high level, but you know, he somehow he was assistant coach, he had his mentor. Uh, and uh, I can mention uh, Rigo Saki, he was one of the top with Milan, he won everything. He never played football, he started with a low, very low amateur uh, in Italy uh, league, and then he went all the way to Milan, won everything possible to win. So it's also fascinating uh, um, for sure. They asked me. Is it important to have been a player to be a coach? I think it's a bonus, in my opinion. It helps, but it's not enough at all. You know, at all. After three months, the player cannot care less about what you did as a player. They want to know what you give to them legitimately. Yeah, 100%, Claudia. I love that. So I, I can't let go, of course, when you mentioned that. I think it was, uh, I believe, Takao Suzuki uh, that, you know... The, working with him and thinking of the memories kind of, you know, touched your heart and everything. So I wanted to just ask you about that. What in particular, uh, how is it touching? And I know it seems like you probably uh, lived it. You said you lived in Japan for, for a while and you, I know you worked with him for like 11 years or so. So uh, can you talk about that experience and how it impacted you? 
That was amazing. No, I was just at the end of my playing career. It was one year I played doubles with Tagao. We made two final challengers, but I was start already coaching him. And the first time we went to Japan, went to Japan in '96. So no smartphone, no internet, nothing. I I felt the difference of culture. You know, it, there's nothing more far than Italian and Japanese. So we had to face this. He didn't speak English. I had to teach him English when he came first to me in uh, satellite. It was called satellite at that time in Holland. You know, teach him how to play on clay. I was still beating him easy on clay, at least. And uh, I didn't speak English. So if you listen now, him is a great commentator. And wow, wow, it's a very important uh, channel in Japan. He speaks very English when he do an interview, but with Italian accent, you know, because he learned from me. And he's Japanese. You know? So this is very interesting. And um, I learned so much in the human part of view of when two culture clashes, you know. There's, uh, I went to Japan... I speak to Takawa, I said, uh, I'm coaching you, yes, I give up my career, playing career, I will only play doubles with you, and, uh, but you have to promise that you want to be international, what I mentioned before for the Italians, you know, you want to travel, you don't want to be the king of Japanese league or Japanese championships, so playing Davis Cup in Japan, get a World Cup Japan Open, don't, I don't come in, in, to you with you in, to do that. I want to, you to compete on court number 18 at 9 o'clock in the morning, police in the Challenger in, I don't know, anywhere in the States, South America. And he said, yes, I promise I'll do that because I think tennis is very open mind sport. You know, it's not a corner in the world where there's no tennis tournament, tennis coach, tennis player, tennis, uh, uh, anything. that. Uh, so you have to be ready to compete with Europeans, with South Americans, American, Australians, other Asians, everybody. Yes, I promise. Because in Japan, you have uh, you have all these Japanese language speak all in Japan. You are an island. At that time, it was more isolated Japan, you know. So they the only Japanese food eat only Japanese food. This is great, but it's not good for tennis. So you have to be more open, and and I mean, there's a cultural operation. So another great story is that the first time he was 18, he went to Japan Championships and he won it. You know, for not being seeded, he beat. Goichi Modomura in the final in front of his emperor. The emperor comes to see the final. And when he got the, the, the ceremony in front of the emperor with a microphone, he said, I could never expect that. I thought I was going to be arrested, you know, because the, the, the emperor Japanese is almost a divine figure, you know. He said, uh, yes, this is just for a step. And he said, oh, I told him. So because in Japan, we are just an island, we are the open open up our mind, we have to speak more languages, we have to travel, we are too close, in front of his emperor. He's representing the, 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 the soul of Japan. You know, it was Akito, the son of Hirohito. Hirohito is an historical figure in the World War II. And everybody was frozen like this, you know, because you don't have the lesson in television in front of his emperor. So the emperor was standing up and clapping first to what he said. So he had the, the endorsement of his emperor on, on a cultural base that he agreed with me. And I was the only non-Japanese in the stadium, Ryaki Stadium, 10,000, where they're going to play the Olympics now. And, and I was on tears because I, I got from the fear of disrespecting the emperor. And, and that's maybe somebody <laughs> come to me from having the best ever endorsement and to me, to create a connection between two very different cultures, I learned that when two cultures, the tendency is to take the best out to one another. And this is the best medicine against the racism, you know, because you have to know the other culture. If nothing is, nobody's worse or better, it's just different. You have to know, and that's why traveling is so important. 
So Trakao improved him as a person, blowing the, the best out of Italian culture. And I proved myself as a person, as, as a, knowing the Japanese culture, taking the best from Japanese culture. You know, my wife is originally Japanese. I know this culture so well. So it's, it's incredible to create bridges, tennis. And this is the best bridge I ever built through tennis. And so unforgettable and lifetime relation with Tagawa talking him every week. Now he's a great commentator. I'm sure he's doing great favor. He opened the door for Japan. Kei Nishigori once he told me, you remember I came to your, like to Takao clinic <laughs> to learn. He was a kid. He said, no, I don't yeah. remember. Was, but, but you see, he opened the door to, to Japan. He was number one for 10 years. He beat Sri Japan. He beat Michael Chang when he was still top 20. He beat... Uh, so many Yankees in Stockholm. It was in the quarterfinal. I was congratulated from Stefan Edberg. It is things that in the men's tennis, besides Shuzo Matsuoga, which is a great champion, was a little bit an exception. Uh, as a size, he was very tall guy and strong, a great champion. But Takao really made feel that the Japanese could make it in the men's. In the women, they already have great champions, Kimiko Dad, etc. But in the men's, he opened the door. So it's another incredibly pride of me to have been done in my life this as Italian from Rome in Japan, living four years of my life in Japan. Ah, beautiful. Love hearing that. Love hearing the stories, uh, especially. It's just so interesting. Kind of switching gears a little bit, Claudio. Um, I, I've heard you talk, and I think it was on my friend uh, Adam Blitcher's, uh, the Adam Blitcher show. Um, you talked about uh, coaching. Well, I guess like the payments, like how you know, I guess some coaches, they, they just get paid based on whether the player wins money in the tournaments and then others are like hourly. So how would you suggest coaches, uh, choose like in between, you know, those obviously big impact, uh, whether, which way you arrange the, the payments for coaching? Well, there are different, uh, options. Uh, I think, I think you're talking about private coaching because they are also, Coaches that are not paid from the players, you know, paid from a sponsor, paid sure. from a federation. So if we limited the conversation on private coaching, I think it's the most fascinating, the most chance to win more money, to make more money. It's not a salary, it's a, it's a percentage. Normally, I suggest uh, to link the payment to the, uh, the, the level of uh, believing you have in the player. You know, if you know when, when Bolelli started, it was 300 in the world, I asked him, give me, I don't know, X percentage was almost zero, you know, because the first, we, even if you win a future, it's $300. So whatever percentage, you know, if you have 10%, is $30. You know, you, you, you pay one breakfast and that's it. But if you are 10%, it was not 10%, but was just as an example of somebody going third round of Wimbledon in one week is pretty good. Uh, or or, or uh, link, linked by the ranking, you know, for, you know, if at the end of the year you get some ranking, you have a bonus. And this motivates the players a lot because the players know I was a player. I was on the other side of, of the uh, discussion when I was a player. I had to pay my coach. You know, I was like when the, I was not asked, okay, pay me uh, this amount per year, no matter what. So it doesn't change a bit of his payment if I win or lose. You know, that doesn't, doesn't smell good. You know, so you want to have a coach and tell you, okay, give me the minimum guarantee because I have to survive. I have to pay my, my bills according also what is your ranking, what the sponsor are, what, what is behind. And then you give me percent of price money is always the best, you know, and, or sometimes you can touch the, the contracts if you can be an agent, but 
then it maybe it's too much work. It's better he has an agent that you trust. You know, I think it's always the coach job to choose the agent and not the other way around. But that's depends. You know, the agent that they don't like me when I say that. But uh, but that I can only say what I believe on. And um, so I think it's uh, the player knows that if he wins, you make more money. You're on the same boat. You know, and, and it's a good feeling to know that you're in the same boat. You win together, you lose together, you take the risk for him. You know, you take the risk for him or for her. Is it a stable, stable job? No, you don't do for the money. It's not, uh, uh, you know, if you want to make a family, if you want to pay your bills, you want to improve your quality of life, you want to buy a house. It's very, it's very unstable because, you know, so many variables, even if you believe in the best uh, empathic uh, relation with the player, you believe it, but it takes time, it takes years to make it. And during these years, uh, uh, we are human beings, you know, that other relation comes, is coming uh, other sentimental lives that can change the mood and, and the balance, the routine. What is true in one year, the next year is totally different. So it's very unstable, but you know you do that because you you have the mission to that. Is you have the vocation to do that, not because you want to. If you want to be stable, choose another job. Go to work. I don't know in the bank. Go working for some companies. And if you want to do the coach, you have uh, you have to be ready. That uh, is is a lot of emotions. Is a lot of instability financially, with a chance to make very good money if if you go really to the top. But you have to be really going to the top. And, or maybe you can have more than one player. You know, you can survive having a little team of two or three players. Or you have a job, you know, you have part-time traveling, you have a tennis school that provides your security to pay your bills, your mortgages. But then you, part of the year, you, you destinate to, to travel. So there are different combinations and options. That's, that's the way I look at it. Fascinating. Uh, appreciate the insight. So would you say that most of the coaches are, are doing like, you know, base salary just to survive and then a percentage and then also maybe um, supplementing with like some other job because it does seem, you know, like you said, it's very tough, uh, you know, living. <laughs> yeah, I really I really don't know exactly the numbers, but uh, sure. yes, uh, I think that there is many coaches have families, they have kids. And that's why also now there is uh, more than one coach because at my time, not, not everybody was crazy enough like me to travel for for. 20 years and more, 40 weeks per year. So your availability is now less. And the, the player also maybe is a good solution to have uh, two coach friends that they can split the, the traveling or traveling with the conditioning trainers. It's not bad for the players sometimes to go without the coach. So they don't only rely on the coach, but they can rely on themselves on, on creative tactics, on fighting, but you have somebody there to take care of the conditioning. So it's, it's pretty much uh, you can be creative and also depends on the player feelings, uh, depends on the player situation. Uh, somebody likes to go with the girlfriend or with the, with the wife because it makes me feel, them feel good. So there's a combination of, of, of uh, possibilities. Now I'm a uh, consultant of Andre Martin. He's a great guy, great player from Slovakia that is, uh, is, is doing well this year. He took a set to Djokovic in Belgrade and it is uh, now close to play Olympics. So I, I never left the tour completely, but you know, I, I, I slow down a lot. But you know, I, who knows? Maybe one day, if come in the right situation, I can go back more. Now I, I feel my main job is what is written here, JTCC, which you know that is a, a really fantastic fit with my believing the the, the atmosphere. That, you know, I'm so grateful to Ray Benton, my CEO, and uh, Beza Ponka is the 
president of JTCC in College Park. I couldn't be more happy and more likely. The first time I, 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 have, uh, I have a boss, I have uh, an organization behind me, I couldn't be more proud. And, and I, I really want to keep going with that uh, a lot. And, and I'm very grateful to be able to do that. Even keeping, you know, contributing with my experience, my contacts, my, my coaching uh, in different ways. For sure, Claudio. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the JTCC Junior Tennis Champion Center. Uh, the one in College Park is maybe like 20 minutes away from me. And I've, I've played there a lot for, you know, tournaments and things like that. And, and I also, as I mentioned to you before, uh, uh, took a lesson with Vesa many years ago. And uh, it was one of the toughest lessons I ever had. But yeah, they do a great job there. And, you know, Dennis Kudla and Francis Tiafo, as we saw, you know, he did well in Wimbledon and, and you know, they're products of, of GTCC, as are many other great players. And, um, you know, yeah, Robbie Montgomery, Robbie Montgomery, she's doing yeah. really well. He's a great junior and top prospect. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just, just a great, I mean, you know, when I go in there and I see like the, the pictures of all the players, it's like, uh, you know, all the best players that I have seen in the area and in other areas too. So um, very cool that you are there in the Jacksonville site uh, at, at Bulls, um, I believe. So, so Claudio, uh, what are three books that you would uh, give to a friend to help them uh, improve their tennis game? Yes, I was hoping about this question because you mentioned Beza Ponca. I know I got a present from Beza once. And now I realize that when I was talking about uh, the book of uh, uh, Bill Tilden, that's the book, Match Play and the Spin of the Ball, William Tilden. This is nice. the, the father of every coach, even before uh, Harry Hoffman. So this is uh, from uh, JTCC Library. And, and you see how important it is to have uh, such organization at such high level of, uh, of, uh, of tennis culture and, and the grips and a hundred years ago. And they're so, so use, utilizing, we're going to utilize this nowadays incredibly. So match play and spin of the ball, William Tilden. Then many, they already read, but this is, I keep uh, the inner game of tennis from Timothy Galway, this book that, that I think is a must, uh, every, every coach. And the other one I said is an Italian tennis training from, from Alberto Castellani that I hope one day will be translated in English because it's really an incredible source of inspiration. So, but you know, this, this, I got a present from Beza. We both know Beza. So I really want to show how, how precious is the present I got from him and, uh, and how proud I am of JTCC matching my believing in tennis and uh, to have this opportunity to work with JTCC. So, that's uh, that's the three books that I can I can mention. Awesome, Claudio. Thanks a lot for that, and, and we'll link to these books uh, in the show notes page so you all can check them out. So, Claudio, uh, also just want to just ask you about your day to day at JTCC in, in Bulls uh, at Jacksonville. You know what what you're doing there. Um, if you could just tell us. Yes, I, I love to be in a school. It's a very prestigious high school in both in Jacksonville. And uh, it's a very sport, sportive school because they have 20 sports and more. So I, I have the, the duty to take care of the tennis program as a JTCC uh, on behalf of both schools. So uh, day by day is to mainly uh, create a good uh, team spirit within the coaching team. I think that's the, the job different for coaching as, as I'm the director. So I have to take care of that. There is uh, experienced coaches, younger coaches, 
that uh, each one has his uh, own way and to, to get the best out of it. And everybody needs to be a team player and to be believing in the projects and, uh, and uh, learn from each other, including me. Of course, I have to learn from, I have a lot to learn from, from, my, from our coaches and uh, inter-exchange with College Park. You know, now COVID didn't allow this to do anymore for the last two years, but now we, we like to, uh, we go to College Park and College Park coaches and, and players come to, to Jacksonville. That's this incredible uh, boost for, I think, for both and, and to help each other. And uh, yeah, we have all progress from uh, red dot, uh, you know, in entry level, four years old kids, all the way to, you know, then it's called the uh, yellow strikers, you know, they develop and then they go to to high school level, they play for the school and then uh, high performance, college prep, JTCC, I want to remind you for sure, the school in America with most players brought it to the, to the college, you know, to have these college careers, this, I learn. Uh, uh, not too long ago, uh, the beauty of NCAA, of college tennis. I've been coaching one year to learn in the UNF, University of Florida, which is n- nearby where I live. And then uh, until professionals. So we have professionals. Uh, we have another conditioning trainer who lives in Jacksonville with joint forces. His name is Jacob Mayer. That uh, is uh, funny enough. Uh, months ago, I said, you know, Claudio, I-, I will go. It's okay. I go to Paris for Rangaros because I have this girl from Czech asked me to work with her there. And, and I, yeah, great. It's great experience. It's Barbara Krejcikova that she won single and double <laughs> with him as, as a physical trainer. So, the coaching team is my main job to to put it together and to and to be sure that is all you know in the same uh, direction, going the same direction. And then I go myself still on court, but a little bit less. Create the groups is very important to identify the groups. I talk to the parents and try to create a sport culture, tennis culture in this case, at the highest level possible. Not always easy, you know. Not always easy to explain parents that they have uh, expectations that uh, they are not exactly the the right one for the son and daughter. But it's our job to try to interact and try to explain. And uh, and then I I cannot be more supported that JTCC supporting us uh, in our in our in our school. Yeah, awesome to hear that. Just again, such a great facility. Um, uh, they do a great job. I mean, all the coaches there are, are so good. So, um, Claudio, uh, where can the audience follow you uh, online or um, just you know see see what you're doing? I mean, I don't know if you have like a you know TikTok or <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, anything like that that you want to shout out for us to check out. Yeah, I'm on Facebook uh, and. Uh... I am uh, using social networks to create contacts. I have a website. It's called Claudio Pistolesi Tennis, where is my, you know, uh, pillars of my believing. And uh, if you want to contact me through the, the email, is cpistolesijtcc.org. Uh, uh, and if you want to see bolts.org is, is where we are in Jacksonville as a, as a school that we mentioned, Bolts School, beautiful. And of course, the jtcc.org, uh, if you want to see the College Park organization, and you can call them if somebody's interested to, to find me. And, but, you know, the best is to send me an email that I mentioned, uh, cpistolesi at, at uh, jtcc.org. That's, that's the easiest way to do it nowadays. I'm in Facebook and Instagram, and I think it's not difficult to find me. 
Very good. Well, we'll do then. And I will uh, include these links as well uh, so that you can uh, have these resources to, to follow what Claudio is doing or check out his website, which you also definitely do, um, or JDCC. So Claudio, I, I'll close with this question, which, is, which I ask all my guests, which is, uh, you know, obviously you've given us a lot of great advice today, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them really improve their tennis games? Well, the most important is to have the goal setting, uh, knowing that regardless the level, the motivation of being a tennis player or loving tennis is always worth it. So you, you are a tennis player. It's, it's enough to be very proud of that. Tennis is very difficult sports. There are more sports similar to come up like pickleball, paddle. But I hear, ah, that's, that's good because they're easy. That's, that's the what I don't like, you know, <laughs> you know, because I like to be competitive and, and uh, challenge myself. Tennis is a bigger court. It takes years to learn. It's, the score of tennis is uh, no time limit and no tie. And uh, there is so many ways to be successful, you know, to be successful as professional. We talk so much about professional tennis, but I also want to mention the NCAA college tennis so you study JTCC specialists. You see the logo JTCC is the is the is the player playing serve with the with the square hat of graduation. I'm inside the school. I founded also my company years ago, which I still run. It's called CP Cloud Pistoles Enterprise. That I merged with the JTCC to invite the players with the potential and interest to do the college career. So you can be very good. Uh, you know, my son was playing number one and two at USF in Tampa, and and. Uh, he, had, he was great in, uh, with his tennis because he supports support the family to, with scholarship to, to get a graduation. Now he's, he's a professional in other, in other parts, but thanks to tennis. Uh, if you are a doctor, but you're a good tennis player, you can play the championship of doctors. So you are known as a good, do good doctor, but also as a tennis player. So it's uh, socially uh, to create contacts for your job is very important. So it's always worth it to love tennis. So this is the my advice last advice to the audience uh, to love tennis and is always if you like tennis uh, don't worry too much about your level winning or losing try to put yourself position yourself where you can the best you can but it's always worth it to be keeping lifetime a tennis player yeah thank you so much for that i mean that's just uh the best message you can give really i mean i've personally experienced as you have you know i i've i've gotten <laughs> jobs from tennis i met so many great people from tennis i you know my my health is better because of tennis uh my mentality is better you know and so yeah. uh just just great to keep keep going and, and love the sport so uh claudio thank you so much for your time uh, i know your time's valuable and uh you know you've been speaking with us for a while so um thank you for your contributions to tennis and and for you know uh both past uh at, now and pre, uh, future as well. So uh, big shout out to you and to JTCC as well. So uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast and I hope to speak with you again soon and best of luck with everything. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. As I said, I love to share. So I am thanking you to, for having me and I hope uh, to inspire somebody and, and to make some people think about tennis and follow uh, so many things, uh, beautiful things around our beautiful sport. And so thank you. I hope to see you again. Thanks, Claudio. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Claudio Pistolesi. And again, Claudio, thanks so much for your time. Uh, actually, I forgot to mention, it was very fortuitous that uh, when I contacted Claudio via email, 
emailed me back and said, hey, you know, we can actually do this today because there were uh, some storms going on in, in Florida where he's at, uh, I guess in Jacksonville. So he had to stay inside the whole day. So, uh, you know, just uh, got it done and ended up speaking for a long time and really enjoyed hearing Claudio's insights on the tour and coaching and all of that stuff. So uh, if you enjoyed this episode and if, if you enjoy the Tennis Files podcast and find value from it, I would really highly appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast and you can do that in Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice that you use to listen to the show. Again, that would really be helpful to let me know what you think about the show as well as helping the Tennis Files podcast be visible to more people because the more reviews and ratings uh, it gets, the uh, higher it goes up in the lists and so forth. So thanks so much for that. And I want to leave you with a quick quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Scott Allen. And Scott said, there are no quick fixes, but by taking action just a little bit every day, you will build up a powerful reservoir of confidence, self-esteem, and discipline. Scott Allen, fantastic quote there. Uh, I definitely talk about this quite a bit, uh, usually at the end of the shows to give you some inspiration. So yeah, just keep plugging away and become a problem solver, improve a little bit every day, and you will definitely grow by leaps and bounds in your tennis as well as your life in general. And all of the links that we mentioned and the books will be in the show notes. So you can just check that out uh, in your app or at tennisfiles.com slash 208 for the number of the episode. And that applies to any episode that you listen to. Just plug in tennisfiles.com slash and then the number of the episode. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. I look forward to bringing you some great interviews in the upcoming episodes. And I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.